Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan and today on The Detail... Well, in a move that's probably going to anger a lot of people and that police describe as calculating and deliberate. A young couple from Auckland who had essential workers status went to the border, got permission, crossed over, drove to Hamilton and then flew to their holiday home in Wanaka. It was an outrageous transgression of the COVID rules and it gave the public and the media a lightning rod to heap scorn on. And heap we did. When we spoke to some of the neighbours, they described the actions as selfish. They don't know whether they've got COVID or not. Um, they've put Wanaka at risk. They've put Hamilton, Wellington, Queenstown at risk. I thought, quite frankly, it was remarkable behaviour. Completely inexcusable. Pissed off would be the, a word that would be pretty bented around and, and the arrogance of, of a sense of entitlement, all these sorts of things. I've just got John's voice in my head. <laughs> yeah. Dick. Yes. But as has been pointed out, William Willis and Hannah Rawnsley were far from the first people to break the Auckland lockdown rules. They were, however, the first to apply for discretionary name suppression. And ironically, when it was granted, it served only to blow up the issue even further. An RNZ data analysis has revealed Pākehā are granted name suppression three times as often as Māori, even though Māori are charged and convicted with more crimes. So why did the Wanaka couple apply for name suppression? Why was it granted? What's the point of name suppression when it can be so easily flouted on social media and when it's so leniently enforced? And has the saga of William Willis and Hannah Rawnsley exposed inherent unfairness in who gets to protect their identity and who doesn't? Graham Edgler is a Wellington barrister and public law expert. When we talk about name suppression, what is name suppression? It's a few different things. Mostly it's either statutory, automatic, or a judge ordering that certain reports about court proceedings can't mention people's names or details about them or or facts in the case. Uh, And so sometimes that's automatic, for example, in the youth court, and sometimes that's a judge has a discretion. In this case, I'm going to suppress someone's name or something that someone said in court. And so it's just a a way of making it illegal to have certain things reported. Okay. So what is the idea behind it? Why is it like a thing? A lot of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons we have automatic name suppression is for victims in sexual cases is that people who have been sexually assaulted, perhaps raped, um, shouldn't have to have their names made public. Um, It's a very private thing that happened to them. And so, you know, giving evidence in court is, you know, a a problem for them. It's hard to do. And if you knew your um, name was going to be plastered over the media, um, you might never make a complaint or or never turn up to court because of the the embarrassment and the publicity. And so um, there are times when, you know, we've taken the position that, you know, banning a particular type of report of a court proceeding is, is justified for an important reason. One of the other automatic name suppressions, children and young people who are in the youth court. And so, you know, young people who are who have gotten in trouble with the courts or something like that, the approach for them is very much, we want to rehabilitate this person. We don't want to, you know, affect this person for the rest of their life for something they did as a as a child or a young person. And so we'll suppress, you know, proceedings of the of the youth court. And the same sort of assessments are made when you're just talking about you know, standard adult offenders. Um, are the consequences of publishing this person's name 
so great that compared to perhaps the not very serious criminal offence they might have committed, letting this person's name be published would be so harmful that you know it so outweighs the harm they did in committing a crime that it's unfair, unjustified to, to make them suffer that consequence. It's relatively rare, certainly permanent suppression is relatively rare, um, but that's sort of the assessment you're looking at. The fact that someone is famous is, is not a basis on which they can get name suppression. They can't just say, you know, I'm a famous person, there will be more publicity. They still have to meet the statutory test in case of someone charged with an offence. It has to be a very serious level of harm that would be caused to them by the publicity of their name. But factually, you know, the news media reports, you know, former All Blacks who get charged with offences basically every time it happens. And they don't report, you know, random guy on the street whom we've never heard of. And so just as a consequence of the types of things, the way the news media operates, what people are interested in as members of the public, famous people don't automatically have a right to name expression. But the consequences of being a famous person in court is you get a lot more publicity than anyone else in court. And so if someone else was to get the same level of publicity as that famous person, they might be able to show the same level of hardship that you'd need. But if the news media is not going to report your case, or maybe you know it's going to be you know a, a one line on page 14 of some local paper or something like that, if you're not worried about the media covering it because of who you are or the circumstance of the case, you don't need to ask for name suppression. The only people, a lot of the people who ask for name suppression are the people who feel they need to because the media is going to cover their case because of who they are. If we look at the Wanaka couple got name suppression temporarily, one of the reasons they needed it is they felt there was going to be a lot of publicity. You know, one of the mother a judge or father a, a prominent lawyer. Sometimes it's a consequence of the types of publicity that there are and the way the media operates. This makes sense, if you think about it. No point getting your name suppressed from any media reports if there aren't really going to be any media reports to suppress it from. There's a factor Edgler keeps referring to, though, that is a bit abstract. To qualify for discretionary name suppression, you have to show extreme hardship. So what counts as hardship? Is it just financial? It, it can be you know, the amount of publicity or this person will receive death threats because of the type of charge that they're facing. Or you know, this person's business might collapse and you know, dozens of their employees, you know, even though this person hasn't been convicted, may still be innocent. You know, dozens of people might lose their job because of you know, some contract negotiation that's coming up. And if it was found out that this person was charged, and they at this point you know, are entitled to the presumption of innocence, but um, that's something that the government has to do. It's not something that the public has to do. You know, you don't have to react the same way as the courts do and, and the police do in treating someone as innocent until they're convicted. And so the consequences of someone just, you know, a charge being laid, um, we haven't even had a chance to look at the evidence yet to see whether it's justified. You know, maybe it's not. And you've told everyone there was enough evidence to charge this person. And a lot of the consequences of conviction fall on them even though they haven't been convicted yet. And so whether there's extreme hardship is, is very much a, a factual question about a particular person in a particular case. There are a lot of factors, but they're all factors which lead into hardship. You know, um, you know what are the consequences of their employment? What are the consequences on family members or something? You know, if your mother found out in this circumstance and you haven't had the chance to breach it to her, you know, 
will it you know affect her health or whatever or, or, or all sorts of things so there are a lot of things factors that can be taken to a health account you know is this person under a particular mental strain at the moment that if there was additional publicity that they might be a risk to themselves and so those sorts of questions are factual there you know a lot of factors that can come into is there hardship is there extreme hardship but that really is the legal test of is there hardship and it's just what could count as hardship in a particular case um, depends on the facts. People just saying oh, you know I'm very upset about this and I don't want my name to come out that will never be enough you've got to make a stronger case than that and so having access to a good lawyer and being able to pay a good lawyer to do that for you is obviously an advantage. Why is it only quote-unquote good lawyers who apply for or get name suppression? Like, what are the difficulties for lawyers in applying for and having name suppression granted to their clients? It's, it's one of the complexities of the legal aid system. If you can't afford your own lawyer, then you get a lawyer appointed for you. That lawyer won't be appointed for you at the first time you're in court. You'll go into court and there will be a lawyer there, a duty solicitor, who will be able to speak for you. But they're not your lawyer. They're just there to make sure you understand what's going on that day and to argue, you know, for five minutes with the judge about something. They're not your lawyer. They're the person who's there to help you that day. Then you apply for legal aid. And then, perhaps a week later or two weeks later, legal aid will assign a lawyer to you. You've had your first call in court. If the media were there and have published your name, it's too late now. It took a week before you got a lawyer. You haven't had the chance to get, you know, all the evidence, you know, get a, a psychiatrist or get, you know, public statements from business partners or whatever that you could do if you're paying your own lawyer and could start paying them once you thought, you know, there's a chance. You know, I've been interviewed by the police. I need a lawyer. Your lawyer can start working it on then if you're paying them. But if you're waiting for a state-funded lawyer, you don't get them in time to apply for early name suppression of the type you need to actually stop publicity at your first arrest. And so it's a, a practical matter. That's interesting. So, like, I mean, because one of the subtexts to that piece is that the name suppression instrument is, is not fairly accessible. Do you consider that a fair critique? Oh, it's a fair critique of the entire justice system. There's a, there's a quote that someone gave about, I think, the OJ thing. It's, it's better to be a guilty rich man than a poor innocent man on the criminal justice system. And it's true of the entire, not just criminal justice system, but the civil justice system. If you can afford a lawyer, if you are rich, you can get arguments made and someone can take the time to really you know, get through the nuts and bolts of something, to argue something. Um, I do think it somewhat works the other way as well, though. And so one of the reasons why privileged and famous people get name suppression more often is because the news media likes to report about privileged and famous people. And so we had that recently with the, the, the two individuals who left Auckland for, for Wanaka. The media has published their name. Last week, fresh police figures showed 204 people had been charged for 219 offences nationwide since Alert Level 4 came into place. As far as I know, they're about the only MIQ breaches whose names are public. These people haven't been charged yet and you know their names are public, but... Other people who have been convicted of breaches of MIQ um, haven't had as nearly as much publicity as they have. And that's true in a, a lot of aspects, you know, of the, the murder trials which get front-page coverage every day and, you know, news, news articles every day during a murder trial. The victims or the 
the accused in those cases tend to look different from the average victim. You know, we had the Scott Guy and Scott Watson cases and things like that, where it's privileged white people who are charged or privileged white people who are victims, and the media covers those cases a lot more. You know, and it's not always the case, but those are the those are the really high-profile cases in New Zealand, and so it's a factual reason why why name suppression is more likely in some cases than others is because the public and the media are more interested in some cases than others. Mm. The cases that the media are interested in are the cases that people want suppression for. All of which raises the unanswerable question. Did the Wanaka couple ask for suppression because the public was interested or was the public interested because the couple wanted name suppression? In that case, I'm not sure. I certainly think if you're one of those journalists who just who's in court, you know, in a district court, see, you know, 30 defendants in a day, when someone asks for name suppression, your ears are going to perk up. You know, you're going to write maybe one or two stories about one or two people who were prosecuted, who came before court on that day, you know, and there were you know, 40 different people who were before that judge for their five or 10 minutes arrested for drink driving and pleaded guilty, and the judge was working out what level of fine and how long their suspension should be. And most of those cases don't make the major newspapers, but there'll be a case that does. And if someone asks for name suppression, um, it's going to be something that a journalist is interested in. I don't know what actually happened in this case. I suspect there, were, there was probably some media interest, but there was certainly a lot more once the suppression was applied for and, and granted. Yeah, and then it spiralled into sort of an example of a thing that is colloquially known as, as the Streisand effect. Can you, I mean, are you familiar with that term? Can you explain what that is? Yes, and so um, I understand it was uh, Barbara Streisand, um, the, the entertainer, had objected to a, I can't remember if it was a newspaper or a website or, or whatever it was, publishing some photos of her house. That she felt it was an invasion of privacy and she feared that, you know, People were more likely to visit her or whatever, and possibly uh, be. She felt under threat because of it, and uh, she sued, and um, she lost. And many, many more people have seen photos of her house because she sued. You know, than would have if the news article had just been printed and you know, been you know, the fish and chip paper the next day. As an example, say I go into the bathroom at my high school and I spot a bit of graffiti in one of the cubicles that says Emile Donovan has stinky breath. Naturally, I'm affronted. I do not have stinky breath. Thank you very much. So I go to the principal. I say, Mrs. Principal, I want you to do something about this. Next assembly, the principal gets up and announces all boys using the bathroom will disregard the graffiti in the cubicle farthest from the door. Don't even look at it. So what happens? Well, naturally, for the rest of the year, and probably my high school career, the whole school is buzzed with the news. Emile Donovan, his stinky breath. Other reasons you have, have name or fact suppression. Yeah, so we had the Jesse Kempson murder trial up in Auckland. The man who murdered British backpacker Grace Mullane has had his bid to overturn his conviction and sentence rejected by the Court of Appeal. However, he still cannot be named after his last-ditch bid to the Supreme Court to keep his name secret. He was facing later charges, and they courts wanted to make sure that the, you know, the next jury didn't know he was the murderer. Um, particularly once he was convicted of murder. You know, he was facing wholly unrelated charges in relation to someone else. And so there was a great deal of public interest in finding out what his name was and finding out information about him because they were told they couldn't. 
had the case in Australia, the, the Cardinal Pell uh, prosecution. Here is former Nine to Noon media commentator Gavin Ellis. When Pell first appeared back in June of last year, there was a possibility of a second later trial on different charges. The trial judge issued a blanket suppression order on any information about the case. When that that guilty verdict occurred, of course, Australian media couldn't report it because of the, the blanket ban. But the Australian found out that in the 24 hours after that verdict, more than 140 international news reports about the verdict were published. Even within Australia, social media was was going wild. What it does show is that in this day and age, suppression orders really don't work. In 2011, the Criminal Procedure Act came into force. One of its aims was to make it tougher to get name suppression, which at that stage was entirely at a judge's discretion. The Act brought in guidelines such as the extreme hardship test we talked about earlier. RNZ Legal Counsel Robert Stewart told me that while the changes weren't perfect, they did succeed in tightening up the rules around name suppression and making it a less arbitrary process. We have a lot of suppression orders, certainly more than places like the US or something like that where it's basically impossible to get them. We don't treat them quite as seriously as some other countries do, say the United Kingdom or Australia does. It would be very rare for someone to get prison for breaching them in New Zealand. Again, this dovetails quite nicely with the the Wanakru, which is the Wanakru example is like a case study in this kind of stuff. I find it fascinating in that even after name suppression was granted, it was easy to find out who they were. Is name suppression even really enforceable in the age of social media? Absolutely. The difference is, in some cases, it's not going to be. But in most cases, it is. You know, people know the name. You know, there's a lot of people knew Jesse Kempson's name. A lot of people knew these people's names, you know, the Wanaka couple. But how many names can you or they think of from the last year or two? Oh, that was a person who was in trouble in the court and got names fresh. And it's a handful. But there are thousands of suppression orders every year. And so for the really high-profile case, if your aim is to stop inquiring members of the public who want to find out what the name is from finding out the name, then you're going to fail. But if your aim is to stop the juror on a trial of someone you and I had never heard of finding out something about this guy, you know, oh, he'd faced a previous charge, if it's not a high-profile case, they'll type his name to Google and it just won't come up. And the vast, vast majority of people, you know, young people, you know, 16- and 17-year-olds in the youth court who get name suppression automatically... I don't know any of their names. And so the benefits that we have of name suppression for them accrue. They don't get convictions, potentially, depending on on what the charge was. Um, Their name isn't public. And they get to rehabilitate because, you know, their friends might know or something that they got in trouble. But Google doesn't because no one cares. The point that you seem to be making is that, you know, if, if someone really wants to find out who is involved in a case... That they can do it. A name suppression order isn't necessarily going to stop that. But these cases are not the reason that name suppression is in place. It has a much no. broader function than that. It does. And I suspect even in the, the Grace Mullane case, or, you know, because it was really, I mean, I call it Jesse Kemp's case, it was about two trials for him. Sure. And I don't think we've ever known the name of his second victim because his second victim, or at least the victim uh, who he was charged with in the second trial, is still alive. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you wanted to know his name, you could find it out. But the fact his name wasn't on the news 
until a jury had been impaneled for that second trial meant that probably, yeah, a lot of people could have worked out and known what his name was, but maybe the 12 people who got selected for that jury didn't. Most people don't search for the name. You know, people who want to can find it, but I doubt that most people do. And, you know, depending on the reason you're having name suppression, if it's that type of case where you're trying to ensure that someone gets a fair trial, uh, even in a high-profile case, it probably works. Do you think, by and large, that name suppression works? Do you think there are changes that could be made to the system, or do you think, by and large, it performs the function that it seeks out to perform as well as could be hoped? If someone wants name suppression but doesn't really qualify for it, if they're one of those people with you know, lawyers who they're paying a lot of money for, you get an automatic right of appeal, and then you try and appeal again. Um, and so there have been particularly high-profile cases where someone has not gotten, you know, they've gone before a district court judge and said, I want name suppression, and the district court judge has said, no, you don't qualify for name suppression. You know, here's the legal test. You don't come close to meeting it. Um, and then they say, I'm going to appeal. And the judge says, okay, well, if you're going to appeal, then I have to give you name suppression, otherwise your right to appeal would be violated. They get name suppression for another 20 days until they file their appeal. Yeah. And then it takes the court two weeks to hear the appeal. And you know, a week later, you get the decision. And then they say, well, we're going to ask for leave to appeal to the court of appeal. And you went before a district court judge, and that judge says, you don't qualify. Yeah. But because you've been fighting it for, you've got name suppression for the next two months. And you know, now the media has moved on. And, you know, they might publish your name, but, you know, the types of stories that ought to have happened when you were first charged um, don't. Sometimes it would be better for the media if name suppression was granted, because then the media could have their appeal heard the next day. Um, whereas if name suppression is refused, then they can say, well, I'd like to appeal. And then they get, you know, four weeks to file their notice of appeal during that whole time. Um, they've got an interim name suppression, which really a judge thinks they shouldn't have, but kind of has to give them because they have a right of appeal. And so I think you know, some of the timeframes around appeals from name suppression orders could probably be changed so that sort of that type of gaming is a lot more difficult. But by and large, I think the standard of extreme hardship is right. The, standard, the other standards of, well, we need it to protect fair trial or we need it to protect victims, that's eminently justifiable. And so um, it's really, it's trying to work out, are there particular cases or types of cases where courts are what we might think of as getting it wrong and what can we do to ensure that in fact the courts are applying extreme hardship as the test. That's it for today, I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced for RNZ by Newsroom. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform, and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Jeremy Ansel engineered today's episode, which was produced by Alexia Russell, and thanks to Graham Edgler. Matewa.